Book One, Chapter Four, Sections Four through Six of *The Food of the Gods and How It Came to Earth* by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Catherine Eastman. Four. When Winkles had gone, Bensington came and stood on the hearthrug and looked down at Redwood. Her Serene Highness, he remarked. Her Serene Highness, said Redwood. It's the Princess of Vaser Dryburg. No further than a third cousin. Redwood, said Bensington, it's a curious thing to say, I know, but do you think Winkles understands? What? Just what it is we have made. Does he really understand, said Bensington, dropping his voice and keeping his eye doorward, that in the family, the family of his new patient... Go on said Redwood, who have always been, if anything, a little under, under, the average, yes, and so very tactfully undistinguished in any way, he is going to produce a royal personage, an outsized royal personage, of that size. You know, Redwood, I'm not sure whether there is not something almost treasonable. He transferred his eyes from the door to Redwood. Redwood flung a momentary gesture, index finger erect, at the fire. "'By Jove,' he said, "'he doesn't know. "'That man,' said Redwood, "'doesn't know anything. "'That was his most exasperating quality as a student. "'Nothing. "'He passed all his examinations, "'he had all his facts, "'and he had just as much knowledge "'as a rotating bookshelf containing the Times Encyclopedia.' and he doesn't know anything now. He's Winkles, and incapable of really assimilating anything not immediately and directly related to his superficial self. He is utterly void of imagination, and, as a consequence, incapable of knowledge. No one could possibly pass so many examinations, and be so well-dressed, so well-done, and so successful as a doctor, without that precise incapacity. That's it. And in spite of all he's seen and heard and been told, there he is. He has no idea whatever of what he has set going. He has got a boom on. He's working it well on boom food. And someone has let him into this new royal baby, and that's boomier than ever. And the fact that Vaser Dryberg will presently have to face the gigantic problem of a thirty-odd-foot princess not only hasn't entered his head, but couldn't. It couldn't. "'There'll be a fearful row,' said Bensington. "'In a year or so.' "'So soon as they really see she is going on growing.' "'Unless, after their fashion, they hush it up.' "'It's a lot to hush up.' <laughs> "'Rather.' "'I wonder what they'll do.' "'They never do anything, royal tact.' "'They're bound to do something.' Perhaps she will. Oh, Lord, yes. They'll suppress her. Such things have been known. Redwood burst into desperate laughter. <laughs> the redundant royalty, the bouncing babe in the iron mask, he said. They'll have to put her in the tallest tower of the old Vaser Dryberg castle and make holes in the ceilings as she grows from floor to floor. Well, I'm in the very same pickle 
and Kosser and his three boys, and, <laughs> well, well. There'll be a fearful row, Bensington repeated, not joining in the laughter. A fearful row. I suppose, he argued, you've really thought it out thoroughly, Redwood. You're quite sure it wouldn't be wiser to warn Winkles, wean your little boy gradually, and, and rely upon the theoretical triumph? I wish to goodness you'd spend half an hour in my nursery when the food's a little late, said Redwood, with a note of exasperation in his voice. Then you wouldn't talk like that, Bensington. Besides, fancy warning Winkles. Now, the tide of this thing has caught us unawares, and whether we're frightened or whether we're not, we've got to swim. I suppose we have, said Bensington, staring at his toes. Yes, we've got to swim. And your boy will have to swim, and Cosser's boys. He's given it to all three of them. Nothing partial about Cosser, all or nothing. And her serene highness, and everything. We are going on making the food, Cosser also. We're only just in the dawn of the beginning, Redwood. It's evident all sorts of things are to follow, monstrous great things. But I can't imagine them, Redwood, except... He scanned his fingernails. He looked up at Redwood with eyes bland through his glasses. "'I've half a mind,' he had ventured, "'that Catterham is right at times. "'It's going to destroy the proportions of things. "'It's going to dislocate. "'What isn't it going to dislocate?' "'Whatever it dislocates,' said Redwood, "'my little boy must have the food.' They heard someone falling rapidly upstairs. Then Cosser put his head into the flat. Hello, he said at their expressions and entering. Well? They told him about the princess. Difficult question, he remarked. Not a bit of it. She'll grow. Your boy'll grow. All the others you give it to will grow. Everything. Like anything. What's difficult about that? That's all right. A child could tell you that. Where's the bother? They tried to make it clear to him. "'Not go on with it!' he shrieked. "'But you can't help yourselves now. It's what you're for. It's what Winkles is for. It's all right. Often wondered what Winkles was for. Now it's obvious. What's the trouble? Disturbance? Obviously. Upset things? Upset everything. Finally, upset every human concern.' plain as a pikestaff. They're going to try and stop it, but they're too late. It's their way to be too late. You go on and start as much of it as you can. Thank God he has a use for you. But the conflict, said Bensington, the stress. I don't know if you have imagined. You ought to have been some sort of little vegetable, Bensington, said Cosser. That's what you ought to have been, something growing over a rockery. Here you are, fearfully and wonderfully made, and all you think you're made for is just to sit about and take your vittles. Do you think this world was made for old women to mop about in? Well, anyhow, you can't help yourselves now. You've got to go on. I suppose we must, said Redwood, slowly. No, said Cosser in a huge shout. No, make as much as you can and as soon as you can. Spread it about. He was inspired to a stroke of wit. He parodied one of Redwood's curves with a vast upward sweep of his arm. Redwood, 
he said, to point the illusion. Make it so. Five. There is, it seems, an upward limit to the pride of maternity, and this, in the case of Mrs. Redwood, was reached when her offspring completed his sixth month of terrestrial existence, broke down his high-class bassinet perambulator, and was brought home bawling in the milk truck. Young Redwood at that time weighed fifty-nine and a half pounds, measured forty-eight inches in height, and gripped about sixty pounds. He was carried upstairs to the nursery by the cook and housemaid. After that, discovery was only a question of days. One afternoon, Redwood came home from his laboratory to find his unfortunate wife deep in the fascinating pages of The Mighty Atom, and at the sight of him she put the book aside and ran violently forward and burst into tears on his shoulder. "'Tell me what you have done to him!' she wailed. "'Tell me what you have done!' Redwood took her hand and led her to the sofa, while he tried to think of a satisfactory line of defense. "'It's all right, my dear,' he said. "'It's all right. You're only a little overwrought. It's that cheap perambulator. I've arranged for a bath-chair man to come round with something stouter to-morrow.' Mrs. Redwood looked at him tearfully over the top of her handkerchief. "'A baby in a bath-chair?' she sobbed. "'Well, why not?' "'It's like a cripple!' "'It's like a young giant, my dear, and you've no cause to be ashamed of him.' "'You've done something to him, Dandy,' she said. "'I can see it in your face.' "'Well, it hasn't stopped his growth, anyhow,' said Redwood heartlessly. "'I knew,' said Mrs. Redwood, and clenched her pocket-handkerchief ball-fashion in one hand. She looked at him with a sudden change to severity. "'What have you done to our child, Dandy?' "'What's wrong with him?' "'He's so big. He's a monster.' "'Nonsense. He's as straight and clean a baby as ever a woman had. What's wrong with him?' "'Look at his size.' "'That's all right. Look at the puny little brutes about us. He's the finest baby.' "'He's too fine,' said Mrs. Redwood." "'It won't go on,' said Redwood reassuringly. "'It's just a start he's taken.' But he knew perfectly well it would go on. And it did. By the time this baby was twelve months old, he tottered just one inch under five feet high, and scaled eight stone three. He was as big, in fact, as a St. Peter's in Vaticano cherub, and his affectionate clutch at the hair and features of visitors— became the talk of West Kensington. They had an invalid's chair to carry him up and down to his nursery, and his special nurse, a muscular young person just out of training, used to take him for his airings in a pannered 8-HP hill-climbing perambulator specially made to meet his requirements. It was lucky in every way that Redwood had his expert witness connection in addition to his professorship. When one got over the shock of little Redwood's enormous size, he was, I am told by people who used to see him, almost daily toif-toifing slowly about Hyde Park, a singularly bright and pretty baby. He rarely cried or needed a comforter. Commonly he clutched a big rattle, 
and sometimes he went along hailing the bus drivers and policemen along the road outside the railings as Dada and Baba, in a sociable, democratic way. There goes that there great boom-food baby, the bus driver used to say. Looks healthy, the forward passenger would remark. Bottle fed, the bus driver would explain. They say it holds a gallon and had to be specially made for him. Very healthy child, anyhow, the forward passenger would conclude. When Mrs. Redwood realized that his growth was indeed going on indefinitely and logically, and this she really did for the first time when the motor perambulator arrived, she gave way to a passion of grief. She declared she never wished to enter her nursery again, wished she was dead, wished the child was dead, wished everybody was dead, wished she had never married Redwood, wished no one ever married anybody, ajaxed a little, and retired to her own room, where she lived almost exclusively on chicken broth for three days. When Redwood came to remonstrate with her, she banged pillows about, and wept, and tangled her hair. "'He's all right,' said Redwood. "'He's all the better for being big. You wouldn't like him smaller than other people's children.' I want him to be like other children, neither smaller nor bigger. I wanted him to be a nice little boy, just as Georgina Phyllis is a nice little girl, and I wanted to bring him up nicely in a nice way, and here he is, and the unfortunate woman's voice broke, wearing number four grown-up shoes and being wheeled about by <laughs> petroleum. I can never love him she wailed. Never! He's too much for me. I can never be a mother to him such as I meant to be. But at last they contrived to get her into the nursery, and there was Edward Monson Redwood, Pantagruel was only a later nickname, swinging in a specially strengthened rocking chair, and smiling and talking goo and wow. And the heart of Mrs. Redwood warmed again to her child, and she went and held her in her arms and wept. "'They've done something to you,' she sobbed, "'and you'll grow and grow, dear. "'But whatever I can do to bring you up nice, "'I'll do for you, whatever your father may say.' And Redwood, who had helped to bring her to the door, went down the passage, much relieved. Uh. "'But it's a base job, this being a man, with women as they are.'" 6. Before the year was out, there were, in addition to Redwood's pioneer vehicle, quite a number of motor perambulators to be seen in the west of London. I am told there were as many as eleven, but the most careful inquiries yield trustworthy evidence of only six within the metropolitan area at that time. It would seem the stuff acted differently upon different types of constitution. At first, Heracleophobia was not adapted to injection, and there can be no doubt that quite a considerable proportion of human beings are incapable of absorbing the substance in the normal course of digestion. It was given, for example, to Winkle's youngest boy, but he seems to have been as incapable of growth as, if Redwood was right, his father was incapable of knowledge. Others, again, according to the Society for the Total Suppression of Boom Food, became in some inexplicable way corrupted by it, and perished at the onset of infantile disorders. 
The Cosser boys took to it with amazing avidity. Of course, a thing of this kind never comes with absolute simplicity of application into the life of man. Growth, in particular, is a complex thing, and all generalizations must needs be a little inaccurate. But the general law of the food would seem to be this, that when it could be taken into the system in any way, it stimulated it in very nearly the same degree in all cases. It increased the amount of growth from six to seven times, and it did not go beyond that, whatever amount of the food in excess was taken. Excess of Heracleophobia, indeed, beyond the necessary minimum, led, it was found, to morbid disturbances of nutrition, to cancer and tumors, ossifications and the like. And once growth upon the large scale had begun, it was soon evident that it could only continue upon that scale, and that the continuous administration of Heracleophobia in small but sufficient doses was imperative. If it was discontinued while growth was still going on, there was first a vague restlessness and distress, then a period of veracity, as in the case of the young rats at Hankey, and then the growing creature had a sort of exaggerated anemia and sickened and died. Plants suffered in a similar way. This, however, applied only to the growth period. So soon as adolescence was attained, in plants this was represented by the formation of the first flower buds, the need and appetite for Heracleophobia diminished, and, so soon as the plant or animal was fully adult, it became altogether independent of any further supply of the food. It was, as it were, completely established on the new scale. It was so completely established on the new scale that, as the thistles about Hickley Brow and the grass of the downside already demonstrated, its seed produced giant offspring after its kind. And presently, little Redwood, pioneer of the new race, first child of all who ate the food, was crawling about his nursery, smashing furniture, biting like a horse, pinching like a vice, and bawling gigantic baby talk at his nanny and mammy, and the rather scared and awe-stricken daddy who had set this mischief going. The child was born with good intentions. Pada be good, be good! he used to say as the breakables flew before him. Pada was his rendering of Pantagruel, the nickname Redwood imposed on him. And Cosser, disregarding certain ancient lights that presently led to trouble, did, after a conflict with the local building regulations, get building on a vacant piece of ground adjacent to Redwood's home, a comfortable, well-lit playroom, schoolroom, and nursery for their four boys. Sixty feet square, about, this room was, and forty feet high. Redwood fell in love with that great nursery as he and Cosser built it, and his interest in curves faded, as he never dreamt it could fade, before the pressing needs of his son. There is much, he said, in fitting a nursery, much. The walls, the things in it, they will all speak to this new mind of ours, a little more, a little less eloquently, and teach it, or fail to teach it, a thousand things. "'Obviously,' said Cosser, reaching hastily for his hat. They worked together harmoniously, but Redwood supplied most of the educational theory required. They had the walls and woodwork painted with a cheerful vigor. For the most part, a slightly warmed white prevailed, but there were bands of bright, clean color to enforce the simple lines of construction. "'Clean colors we must have,' 
said Redwood, and in one place had a neat horizontal band of squares, in which crimson and purple, orange and lemon, blues and greens, in many hues and many shades, did themselves honor. These squares the giant children should arrange and rearrange to their pleasure. "'Decorations must follow,' said Redwood. "'Let them first get the range of all the tints, and then this may go away.' There is no reason why one should bias them in favor of any particular color or design. Then, the place must be full of interest, said Redwood. Interest is food for a child, and blankness, torture, and starvation. He must have pictures galore. There were no pictures hung about the room for any permanent service, however, but blank frames were provided into which new pictures would come and pass thence into a portfolio, so soon as their fresh interest had passed. There was one window that looked down the length of a street, and in addition, for an added interest, Redwood had contrived above the roof of the nursery a camera obscura that watched the Kensington High Street and not a little of the gardens. In one corner, that most worthy implement, an abacus, four feet square, a specially strengthened piece of ironmongery with rounded corners, awaited the young giant's incipient computations. There were few woolly lambs and such-like idols, but instead Cosser, without explanation, had brought one day in three four-wheelers a great number of toys, all just too big for the coming children to swallow, that could be piled up, arranged in rows, rolled about, bitten, made to flap and rattle, smacked together, felt over, pulled out, opened, closed, and mauled and experimented with to an interminable extent. There were many bricks of wood in diverse colors, oblong and cuboid, bricks of polished china, bricks of transparent glass, and bricks of India rubber. There were slabs and slates. There were cones, truncated cones and cylinders. There were oblate and prolate spheroids, balls of varied substances, solid and hollow, many boxes of diverse size and shape, with hinged lids and screw lids and fitting lids, and one or two to catch and lock. There were bands of elastic and leather, and a number of rough and sturdy little objects of a size together that could stand up steadily and suggest the shape of a man. "'Give em these,' said Cosser, "'one at a time.' These things Redwood arranged in a locker in one corner. Along one side of the room, at a convenient height for a six- or eight-foot child, there was a blackboard, on which the youngsters might flourish in white and colored chalk, and nearby a sort of drawing-block, from which sheet after sheet might be torn, and on which they could draw in charcoal. And a little desk there was, furnished with great carpenter's pencils of varying hardness and a copious supply of paper, on which the boys might first scribble and then draw more neatly. And moreover Redwood gave orders, so far ahead did his imagination go, for specially large tubes of liquid paint and boxes of pastels against the time when they should be needed. He laid in a cask or so of plasticine and modeling clay. At first he and his tutor shall model together, he said, and when he is more skillful he shall copy casts and perhaps animals, and that reminds me I must also have made for him a box of tools. Then books. I shall have to look out a lot of books to put in his way, and they'll have to be big type. Now, what sort of books will he need? There is his imagination to be fed. 
That, after all, is the crown of every education. The crown, as sound habits of mind and conduct are the throne. No imagination at all is brutality. A base imagination is lust and cowardice. But a noble imagination is God walking the earth again. He must dream, too, of a dainty fairyland and of all the quaint little things of life in due time. But he must feed chiefly on the splendid real. He shall have stories of travel through all the world, travels and adventures and how the world was won. He shall have stories of beasts, great books, splendidly and clearly done, of animals and birds and plants and creeping things, great books about the deeps of the sky and the mystery of the sea. He shall have histories and maps of all the empires the world has seen, pictures and stories of all the tribes and habits and customs of men. And he must have books and pictures to quicken his sense of beauty, subtle Japanese pictures to make him love the subtler beauties of bird and tendril and falling flower, and Western pictures, too, pictures of gracious men and women, sweet groupings, and broad views of land and sea. He shall have books on the building of houses and palaces. He shall plan rooms and invent cities. I think I must give him a little theatre. Then there is music. Redwood thought that over, and decided that his son might best begin with a very pure-sounding harmonican of one octave, to which afterwards there could be an extension. He shall play with this first, sing to it, and give names to the notes, said Redwood. And afterwards? He stared up at the window-sill overhead, and measured the size of the room with his eye. They'll have to build his piano in here, he said. Bring it in pieces. He hovered about amidst his preparations, a pensive, dark little figure. If you could have seen him there, he would have looked to you like a ten-inch man amidst common nursery things. A great rug? Indeed, it was a turkey carpet, four hundred square feet of it, upon which young Redwood was soon to crawl, stretched to the grill-guarded electric radiator that was to warm the whole place. A man from Cossers hung amidst scaffolding overhead, fixing the great frame that was to hold the transitory pictures. A blotting-paper book for plant specimens as big as a house door leant against the wall, and from it projected a gigantic stalk, a leaf-edge or so, and one flower of chickweed, all of that gigantic size that was soon to make Urshot famous throughout the botanical world. A sort of incredulity came to Redwood as he stood among these things. "'If it really is going on,' said Redwood, staring up at the remote ceiling. From far away came a sound like the bellowing of a mathicking bull, almost as if in answer. "'It's going on all right,' said Redwood. Evidently. There followed resounding blows upon a table, followed by a vast crowing shout, Gulu! Boozu! The best thing I can do, said Redwood, following out some divergent line of thought, is to teach him myself. That beating became more insistent. For a moment it seemed to Redwood that it caught the rhythm of an engine's throbbing, the engine he could have imagined of some great train of events that bore down upon him. Then a descendant flight of sharper beats broke up that effect, and were repeated. "'Come in,' he cried, 
perceiving that someone rapped, and the door that was big enough for a cathedral opened slowly a little way. The new winch ceased to creak, and Bensington appeared in the crack, gleaming benevolently under his protruded baldness and over his glasses. "'I've ventured round to see,' he whispered in a confidentially furtive manner. "'Come in,' said Redwood, and he did, shutting the door behind him. He walked forward, hands behind his back, advanced a few steps, and peered up with a bird-like movement at the dimensions about him. He rubbed his chin thoughtfully. "'Every time I come in,' he said with a subdued note in his voice, "'it strikes me as big.' "'Yes,' said Redwood, surveying it all again also, as if in an endeavor to keep hold of the visible impression. "'Yes, they're going to be big, too, you know.' "'I know,' said Bensington, with a note that was nearly awe. "'Very big.' They looked at one another, almost as it were, apprehensively. "'Very big indeed,' said Bensington, stroking the bridge of his nose, and with one eye that watched Redwood doubtfully for a confirmatory expression. "'All of them, you know,' fearfully big. I don't seem able to imagine, even with this, just how big they're all going to be. End of chapter 4